Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. This book is not good for you. Secret series by... Book 3, Chapter 10. Ooh, we're just trucking along in this book, guys. All right. Chapter 10. Cockaboy. <laughs> Gross. C-A- I think it's supposed to be like cocoa or cacao, but it's spelled wrong. Clearly, carnies were not morning people. When Cass and her friends arrived, the circus was so quiet it could have been in the middle of the night. Through a trailer window, they saw Mickey and Maury playing checkers with some locals. No doubt the clowns were cheating in the rubes of their hard-earned money. But from the looks of it, the clowns hadn't woken up. They'd never gone to sleep. The only noise came from the big top. As they approached, they'd heard a man shouting inside. Come on, you stubborn cat. Are you a lion or a mule? You'd think that you wouldn't want, you don't want to jump now, or are you going, are you, or what are you going to do when this hoop's on fire? I don't know. I don't know. There's still going to be lions. I don't know if there's still going to be lions in the circus, Max Ernest said nervously. I thought they were all gone. When they peeked inside, they saw an old man in tattered, tattered satin suit holding a long tent rope in his hand. The kids recognized him as the amazing Alfred, king of the king of beasts. Welcome, children. Don't be frightened. I promise you, this fierce animal is totally under my control. He waved his rope in the air, attempting to crack it like a whip. Years ago, they'd all been told that Alfred had been a great lion tamer. Rather than a lion, however, the only beast in his tent mirrored this morning was a bored house cat currently licking his paws and not paying Alfred any the least bit of attention. A bright pink hula hoop was positioned in the center of the ring, but the cat wouldn't even look at it. Of course, there's a simple rule, but what to do if you're if you run into a lion, whether you're at the circus or at an African savanna, Alfred continued, what would you like to hear it? Sure, Alfred. Sorry, I mean Mr. Amazing, said Max Ernest, who was feeling just as well as they weren't facing a, facing a real lion at the moment, or a real whip. First of all, never run. That triggers predators' instincts. Instead, spread your arms out so that you look like a big animal who's too much trouble to kill. Alfred demonstrated, tearing his suit, tearing his suit as he did so. That's just like with the bear, said Cass impatiently. Although she'd never faced a bear in real life, she regularly included bear attacks as part of her survivalist training. Now can we go, she whispered to her her friends. Precisely, said the lion tamer with a crack of his whip. Why don't you try it on a bear there? The lion tamer positioned to the side of the tent where a rather heavy her suit, which you may recognize as a polite way of saying fat and hairy, woman who was now standing with her arms folded. This is Myrtle, the circus's bearded lady. 
Alfred, Myrtle scolded. What are you doing to that poor kitten? Kids, what are you doing here so early? Pietro didn't say anything. They're here to keep me company, said Yo-Yoji quickly. You know, you know, Lily, she likes to keep, she likes me to start practicing before the sun comes up. Myrtle snorted. You wouldn't have any fingers left by the time that woman gets done with you. Oh, great, Cass moaned a moment later. She hadn't anticipated the cat food trailer being padlocked, but right there, hanging from the door handle was a large combination lock. Compared to the other devices employed by the Turkish society, it looked crude, but no doubt was an effective was effective in keeping out intruders. The one exception feature of the lock was that there were letters rather than numbers on its face. Chill, said Yo Yoji. We can always find Pietro We can always find Pietro or Mr. Wallace to let us in. No, no, we can't, Cass Cast stammered. How to explain that they were the last people she wanted to see right now. She was hoping desperately not to run into them. Don't worry, said Max Ernest. I know where Pietro keeps the riddle. The riddle? asked Cass. The one that tells you the new combination to its every day. Oh, said Cass, relieved that he knew about the combination, but also a bit peeved that she hadn't been privy to this information. Max Ernest returned with a slip of paper pulled out from underneath an abandoned cotton candy machine. What do you call a lion bite that doesn't hurt? A lion lick? A lion kiss? Max Ernest shook his head. Nope, those are all totally wrong. The answer has to be more, you know, like a pun. Oh, a lion gum? asked Cass. Like, you're going to get his gums, not teeth? That's a pun, sort of. Max Ernest shook his head again. You guys are hopeless. It's so obvious. Oh, yeah? Then what is it? Easy, a catnip. A lion is a kind of cat, and that's that's why it says cat food on the trailer. That's probably where Pietro got the idea. It's a nip, like a little bite that doesn't hurt. But it's a pun because catnip is also the stuff that cat, that makes cats go crazy. How about that? Pretty good, but I'll save my applause until I see you open the door, said Cass. Yeah, man, we don't even know if you're right, said Yo-Yoji. But of course, Max Ernest was right, and the door opened with ease. The Turkish Society archives going back many generations. Inside this trailer, file boxes were stacked to the ceiling. The space was crammed tighter than Cass's grandfather's antique store. But here, everything was in order. Nothing out of place. Every box, every file, every photo, every scrap of paper had been meticulously labeled by Mr. Wallace. Dogs talking. Dogs telekinetting. Dogs two-headed. Underwater cities. Atlantis and others. Emerald tablet. Stories. Legends. Facts. Ceiling walkers of India. 1850 through 1917. The weevils and brain implantation. Medieval dentistry. Prehistoric eating habits. Those are interesting things to archive. Philosopher's Stone, earliest mentions of pygmies A to Z. Cass found the tuning fork file wedged between tunes, Celtics, and tunnels rumored under pyramids. Unfortunately, she discovered there really wasn't much in it. Just a drawing of the tuning fork that Mr. Wallace had already shown them and a long handwritten manuscript on a yellow paper. The manuscript was in Spanish, but there were English translation attached. While Yo-Yoji and Max Ernest looked through other file boxes to see if they could find anything else that would, that would be helpful in their quest, Cass sat down, sat on the speckled linoleum floor, and started reading out loud. 
25th of October, 1597. I write this in this journal, sitting on a beach, I know not where. The new world, or old world, or some other world altogether. After six weeks at sea, I have washed ashore on a desert island. And I am alone, but for the lizards and my thoughts. Next to me is the fatal object that caused the great ship to sink. Yes, that small silver tool lying there so innocently on the sand killed the crew of Santa, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't tell you. It keeps the X's. As surely it has, it, if it has stabbed each sailor in the back, and yet it never so much as touched their fingers. What? No, they're talking about the tuning fork. Myself, I am the only survivor. My story begins on another island. Teohucan, grand capital of the Aztec people, the island city that rises out of the lake of the moon. The in Teotihuacan, there live. Here, let me really try and pronounce this. Toot, maybe I'm just gonna say Toot Tutacan. How about that? Tutacan, there lived a boy of 12 or 13 or so, the sons of farmers. He worked in the royal granary, and every day he carted baskets of food and grain to the palace of the great emperor, Moctezuma. He was known as the Kaka Boy, the name that thankfully does not have the same meaning as in the Aztec language that it has in ours, because he carried so many seeds, the Aztec people, the actual Kakahuel. You cannot imagine the importance of the Aztec people placed on this shriveled little seed. It is the coin of the realm. They traded this seed for the manners of good, just as if the seed were bits of gold. But it is strange. But the strange brown drink they made from the Kakahuel seed that gives the seed its true value. It is frothy and spicy. Yep. And it's cr- frothy and spicy concoction that is quite delicious when sweetened. I go as far as saying it is addictive. Soon I predict it will be all the rage in Europe. Aztecs call it the drink chocolate. Moctezuma had millions and millions of cockahuel seeds stored in enormous bins of straw and clay. To scoop the seeds, the cockaboy climbed inside the bins, sometimes sinking all the way to his chin. He spent so much time surrounded by the seeds that his skin was stained dark brown, and his hair, his very pores, his body, stank of cockahuel. <laughs> That's just like cocoa beans. Mm-hmm. This, I don't think well, it probably just smells like unsweetened chocolate, which is very yeah, odd. Yeah. This would have been so terrible, for he loved the smell, say, the smell, save for one thing. Sadly, he had never tasted chocolate. Among the Aztecs, drinking of chocolate is restricted to noble class, royalty, and priests and warriors. Commoners are considered unfit for such a luxurious elixir. At the place, the rules were even more strict. Only the emperor could drink the chocolate prepared in the royal kitchen. If Kakaboy so much as took a sip, he would be sentenced to death. Every day after making his delivery, 
cockaboy would linger outside the palace kitchen and tortured himself by waiting for the emperor's cooks to prepare the emperor's chocolate. Cup after cup they made pouring and re-pouring until the chocolate was whipped into a delicious froth. There was red chocolate, white chocolate, black chocolate. They served it with honey, with vanilla, with flowers, all for the emperor, always in the emperor's special golden goblets. One day, instead of frothing the emperor's chocolate herself, a cook nervously placed his goblet in front of the mysterious and strange angels, ageless man in the shimmering robe. In his gloved hands, the man held a silver fork that ended in two long prongs. While Cockaboy watched, mesmerized, the man carefully lowered the prongs into the emperor's chocolate. Then he rubbed his palms together, rolling the handle of the silver fork back and forth, causing the prongs to spin faster and faster until you could barely see them. Soon the chocolate was whipped into the biggest head of foam the cockaboy had ever seen. It grew and grew until there was a frothy white mountain ten times the side of the goblet beneath, and yet the goblet never overflowed on the table. The aroma was so strong it nearly threw cockaboy backwards. Afterward, cockaboy asked the cook who was the man he was a sorcerer, they said, and his silver fork could make your food taste like anything in the world so long as, as it is something you have tasted before or even that your ancestors have tasted before. So if I had the fork, I could turn dirt into chocolate, he asked the cockaboy, wide-eyed. My father tasted it once. He said it was like drinking gold. Remember your place, cockaboy. Drinking chocolate is forbidden for your kind, this, the cook said sharply. Besides, she added, lowering her voice, magic like that always comes with a price. Cockaboy didn't see the sorcerer's silver fork again until for three years. By then, the Spanish had arrived, war had broken out, and the city was in chaos. Even the emperor's place was looted. From the shadows of the kitchen, Cockaboy watched the Spaniards carting away the treasures of the civilization, so much like trash. While Cockaboy silently cursed in Spanish, he saw the silver drop out of the soldiers' arms. Cockaboy couldn't believe his luck. In a flash, he darted towards the street and pocketed it. And then he ran. He knew the emperor's guards would kill him if they caught him with the silver fork. If he was lucky, he might be sacrificed to Hitsupachuli. That's their god, I think. The Spanish were even more victorious. If he were caught by the con conquistadors, wait, conquistadors? Oh my gosh. He would be sacrificed to, the, for their, for, sacrificed to their greed and much more quickly. He, <laughs> he flew down similar streets, flung open doors to the gunnery, and dove headfirst into the giant vat of cacool seeds. He hid there, buried for hours. Seeds wedged in between his toes and even up his nose. Finally, when he was sure it was in the middle of the night, he stuck his head out and then he froze because he was trying, he was staring into the eyes of a man, equally surprised. Luckily, this man was neither Aztec nor Spanish conquistador. He was a man of peace, a Franciscan brother, a monk, he was I. 
I had come to the come in vain, hoping in hope of stopping my Spanish kin from looting the food supplies of Aztecs. I was too late. At the far end of the granary, Spanish soldiers were unspending stores of corn. Soon, the cacahuil seeds would spill as well. Now my intention was focused on the young boy in front of me, so clearly frightened and alone. Thankfully, I had learned enough of the Aztec tongue to ask why he was hiding and if he needed help. Before answering, he looked around me, measuring his chances. Um, At one end were the Spanish, the other end were the Aztecs, in either direction, peril. They will kill me if they find this, he whispered, showing me the silver fork with obvious reluctance. The object itself was remarkable, was less remarkable than the images engraved on it. One long prong, there was a long-tailed bird, and on the other, twisted snake. I thought it recognized that the images meant that they made me shiver. Hatingly, the cockaboy told me his story about seeing the sorcerer and then finding the fork years later. Naturally, I dismissed what he said about the sorcerer's fork as superstitiously as superstitious nonsense, but I agreed to take it from him if it meant saving his life. Wait! Quickly, the cockaboy scooped a handful of cockahool seeds, frowning with concentration. He stirred the seeds with the fork. As I watched in disbelief, the seeds dissolved into liquid. Um, A foaming chocolate was now cupped in his hands. Blissfully, he lapped up the chocolate, licking every drop off of his fingers. At last, Cockaboy had tasted chocolate, and it was every bit as good. Nay, it was better than his father had described. His eyes glistened. He handed me the silver fork. Then he jumped out of the bin and ran out of sight. I never saw Cockaboy again. In, it is an awkward position for a poor friar to possess a priceless object with holy powers. I wanted nothing to do with the fork, yet I did not know how to get rid of it. And so it was still hidden in my robes months later when I found myself searching in the path for a passage back to Spain. We friars must often make our way by begging. Alas, a ship contains... Oh, it's still going, yeah. Alas, ship captains do not always have a matching generosity of spirit. May God forgive me, I bargained you for my birth as the Santa XXXX by giving a captain a silver fork. At first, the ship's cook was under strict instructions had used the fork for only preparations of the captain's meal. But on a ship, secrets never stay secret for long. Word of the captain's magical feast spread, and as soon as he had, and soon he had no choice but to share or face mutiny. There was no limit to the fork's powers. With with it, the cook turned old gruel into golden broth and rancid meat into a fat roast goose. They were impossibly ripe fruits and glorious sweetmeats, roasted peacocks and stuffed pigs. Whatever the crew could remember, the silver fork could cook. Forbidden to eat such rich foods by by my vow of poverty, I alone did not partake in the fancy feast. I lived on stale bread. Need I say what happened next? The sailors grew fat and lazy and argumentative. 
The decks were not swabbed, the brass was not polished, the ship veered off course. As much as I tried, I could not stop them from gorging. More, more, they cried, and get out of the way, you old monk, and other things, too rude to repeat. Soon, the chef was forced to turn hay bales into dinner, then old sailcloths into seawater. The meal still tasted delicious, but the food no longer fattened the crew. It made them sick. It was food only in taste. I watched in horror as daily as the sailors grew more skeletal. The more they ate, the more they starved. By the time the big storm came, most of the crew were dead. The others had no strength left to fight. Only I had the will to live. If only I had also had the will to let this cursed fork, si fork sink with the ship. What new horrors does it have in store for the future generations? I shudder to imagine. F.R. Raphael de Leon. <gasps> okay, so that's all they have on the tuning fork. Now, where do they look for it? I don't know. Dude, me either. Oh my gosh, all right. See you in the next chapter.